Well, I add my welcome to all of you for coming, and while you turn to uh, the book of Hebrews, chapter uh, 8, let me just uh, remind you that the two sessions tonight will be built one on the other, and then the concluding session will be tomorrow night at 6.30, and uh, I would just simply say to you that uh, uh, when it's all over, I will have only introduced you to a subject that will probably uh, draw your interest, I hope at least, for the years to come. Uh, somebody asked me, so I'll just go ahead and tell all of you. Uh, it was back in 1964, I was pastoring in Seminole, Oklahoma, and uh, there was a fellow who was pastor of a church in Oklahoma City. Uh, he had been led to the Lord by my father-in-law, who was a Baptist evangelist, but he taught a class at Trinity Baptist Church in Oklahoma City, and out of that class, five men came in ministry, and uh, uh, Harry Boydston was one of those. And in 1964, Harry Boydston came to the church that I pastored it. I invited him there, and he brought a chart, and for the first time in my life, I was, uh, you know, young. 24 years old, three children, pastoring a church in the seminary, traveling from Seminole to Fort Worth and back on Friday, and wearing myself out, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But I heard the tabernacle in the wilderness for the first time. And uh, it wasn't but just two or three months later that I was invited to come preach a meeting, and I asked if I could have noonday session. They said yes. So I wrote Harry and asked him if I could use the material that I heard from him. Now, it's gone through a metamorphosis now so much that um, he wouldn't even uh, recognize anything that I'm saying from what he said, but he launched me into it. And he wrote back and said, of course you can, and don't quote me, and don't use my name, you just teach it. And uh, boy, I was so excited, and about a week later, I got that original chart in the mail from Harry, and I used it from 1964 until last year when I put this on PowerPoint. Uh, if I had been the way I've done for I don't know how many years now, I would have a canvas chart on the platform behind me and would be using a pointer to point out all that I'm teaching that you know we're showing on this. But I'm trying to get into the 21st century, you know, and my, my grandkids are proud of me. They found out I could use this gadget, and oh, they're so excited. So I've really earned their, their trust, and so I'm grateful for that. It is a delight to see you here, and uh, we welcome you. I'm going to be reading from Hebrews chapter 8, and since we're going to be seated for a good while, why don't you stand with me in honor of the Word as we read it together, and uh, look, if you will, beginning at uh, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. <clears throat> now, of the things which we have spoken, the writer of Hebrews is saying, of the things which we have spoken, everything that he said since chapter 1, although there weren't chapters, of course, in the letter when it was first delivered, uh, this is the bottom line. King James says this is the sum. That means this is the bottom line. We have, Christian, a high priest 
who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Talking about the Lord Jesus, who is seated at the right hand of the Father after the ascension, after his resurrection. And uh, the writer goes on to say, who is a minister of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. In other words, he's saying he's not just a minister of the tabernacle of Moses. Notice what he says. For every high priest, like Aaron was and all of his descendants on the earth, are ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. So it was necessary that this man, that is Jesus, have something to offer also. In fact, if he'd been on earth, he wouldn't even be a priest, seeing there are already priests that offer gifts according to the law. But remember, the writer says, those things only serve as an example and shadow of, King James says, heavenly things. The Greek is saying uh, eternal realities. So what Moses built and what we're studying this morning, tonight, and tomorrow night are only pictures, examples of things that are real in the heavens. Okay? And he goes on to say, that's why Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. Uh, See, said God, that you make all things according to the pattern that I showed you in the mountain. And Phil mentioned that this morning, I think, about how Moses was given not just the law, which is the only thing we ever think about, but he was given the tabernacle. And God said, be very careful that you make it exactly as I've given you uh, the thing, the way to make it. And the reason is because they're pictures, they're examples of heavenly realities. Now it goes on to say, but now hath he, that is Jesus, obtained a really better, excellent, greater uh, ministry uh, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. In other words, don't get the idea that Jesus is in the thing of Moses. That's only a picture. Jesus is in a better covenant, a better promise, a whole better deal. Now turn over, if you will, to uh, Hebrews 9, verse 11. So Christ has become a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not in this building. In other words, uh, the tabernacle that Jesus ministers in is not this building. It's only a picture of the real tabernacle, which is in heaven. Now notice what he said. Uh, uh, there are only uh, good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this building. Nor is it by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. He entered into the real tabernacle in heaven, the real holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Now look over at verse 22. And almost all things are through the law purged with blood. As a picture. That's not the reality, that's the picture. And without the shedding of blood, there's no possibility of sin being remitted. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with those, the blood of those goats and calves. But 
the heavenly things themselves, that is the things that they picture, had to have better sacrifices than goats and calves. For Christ is not entered into the holy places that Moses made, made with hands as a reference to Moses making it, which are figures of the true. Man, the writer of Hebrews wanted us to get a point. They're not the real deal. They're only a picture of the real deal. But he has appeared, that is Jesus, into heaven itself, now appearing in the presence of God for us or on our behalf. That is one of the most powerful passages of Scripture that you will ever, ever read. And uh, you can be seated now if you will. What I want to do is remind you that um, we have started in this morning's study to talk about the first house in which God ever dwelt on this earth. And you remember we got it from Exodus 25, verse 8, where God told Moses to take an offering, gold, silver, brass, purple, blue, scarlet, fine linen, goat's hair, ram skins, dyed red, shittim wood, oil for the life, you know, badger skins, all that kind of stuff. And he said, let them make me a sanctuary, verse 8, Exodus 25, in order that... I may dwell among them. And the tabernacle in the wilderness that Moses built to, to, by design from Mount Sinai when God gave the law and the tabernacle, he built it as a picture of what is real in heaven. And if you remember this morning we said every year on the day of atonement the high priest would enter the gate would kill the lamb, take the blood of the lamb on the day of atonement into the holy of holies, and the glory of God would descend. Now, the glory of God represents what? His presence. You remember that vision that Ezekiel had, where Ezekiel saw the throne and the rainbow and the fire. And what God was showing him was, Ezekiel, here I am. I'm powerful, I've promised, and I'm present. You're here in Babylon, but I'm not back in Jerusalem. I'm here with you. And so Ezekiel saw the Lord. And the scripture teaches that God travels in glory. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou hast visited him and crowned him with glory and honor? See, I... Uh, glory is the, the word doxa, which means the manifested presence of God. And I am of the opinion that we make a mistake in thinking that Adam and Eve were naked, per se, before the fall. Now, it doesn't mean they had clothes on, but they're just not having clothes on wouldn't make you naked. I believe they were clothed in glory. Why? Because our God travels in Glory. He manifests himself in the glory of the light, the brightness, the brilliance, the fire. And I'm convinced that uh, Adam and Eve were also surrounded in glory. Why? Because they walked with God in the cool of the day. 
Amos 3.3 says, how can two walk together except they agree? And so there was something of the radiant glory of God around Adam and Eve. And so when Adam and Eve sinned, they lost their relationship with the Father. And so Paul said to the Romans uh, this way, for all have sinned and come short of the glory, the presence of God. And so man is now truly naked, not shrouded in that glory that God himself travels in. You see? And so God wanted this house for his nation Israel. Now, good reason. It's only a picture of what's real in heaven and what's to come. And so every year on the Day of Atonement, they killed that lamb. They sprinkled that blood. The high priest was in the Holy of Holies with those 12 stones in his breast, you know, his breastplate representing all the 12 tribes of Israel. And every time the blood was sprinkled, the glory descended. God's presence came down. They used that building for 400 years. Then they built Solomon's temple. And uh, it was made exactly like the tabernacle, the outer court, the holy place, and the holy of holies. Because God only lives in a three-room apartment. That's the only kind of a house that God's ever dwelt in, a three-room apartment. The outer court, holy place, holy of holies. But it, the temple was bigger. Now, it was exactly like the tabernacle, outer court, holy place, holy of holies, only it was much larger and was not portable. It was permanent. But every year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would bring the lamb. They would kill that lamb, take its blood into the Holy of Holies, sprinkle it on the mercy seat, and the glory of God, God's presence, would come down. They used the temple for 400 years. And then that fiasco of Nebuchadnezzar because of sin that we talked about this morning and how God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to destroy the temple because the hearts of the people were far from God. And they, they got concerned about coming to a building instead of who they were in their heart. And that's never the way with God, you see. And then, of course, we saw that 400 years after the destruction of the temple, the glory never descended again. Ezekiel saw it go into heaven. And Ichabod was written across Israel. The glory has departed. That's what the word Ichabod means. And for 400 years, there was no house on this earth in which God dwelt among men until Luke 2. And in Luke 2, those shepherds were taking care of their sheep. It was midnight. And all at once, the glory of the Lord shone round about like to scare them to death. It was like it had become midday at midnight. They started to run. The angel said, oh, don't be afraid. We have good news for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior. And the house in which God now comes to dwell in is named Jesus. Only it's the full dwelling of the Father. Not one day a year like the tabernacle of the temple. They're only pictures of who was yet to come. The Lord Jesus came and God was in Christ dwelling among men. For 33 years. No wonder they said. Never did any man live like this man lived. Love like this man loved. Uh, because God was in Christ. Relating to fallen humanity. And of course. He came to die. And he did. 
on that cross, laid in that tomb. Three days later on that Sunday morning, the women got there and the stone had been rolled away and the angel said, why seek you the living among the dead? He's not here. He's, a, he's risen. He's alive. And Jesus was raised from the dead and he spent 40 days showing his disciples the reality of what had happened to him, the resurrection. Somebody asked this morning about the number 40. In the scripture, the number 40 generally relates to either testing or uh, uh, judgment. Uh, it rained 40 days and 40 nights and the earth was flooded, judged. Uh, Jesus was tested 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. Jesus was alive among his people 40 days after the resurrection. Why? So he could be tested as to the reality of the resurrection. And then he ascended to heaven. And now he's seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father. However, we saw this morning that Jesus told his disciples to tarry in Jerusalem. Because on the day of the fulfillment of the Feast of the Pentecost, 120, a little embryonic New Testament church, in the upper room, there was the sound of the rushing mighty wind, tongues of fire. And I ask you this morning, why wasn't their hair burned? And the answer is because it wasn't that kind of fire. It was the glory, the presence of God. The second question I ask this morning, where did those tongues of fire go? And the answer is what? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which you have of God. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. And so they became the house. And subsequently, every person in fallen humanity converted becomes the house in which God dwells on this earth. Our body is his house. And to the degree that people will see the reality of God living in us to that degree, they'll believe that he's really, really here. And so, there is a logical question then. The, now, that's a review, by the way. In case somebody missed being here this morning, we wanted to kind of catch you up. But it brings us to a logical question. If it's true that our body is the temple in which God dwells today, that is, in the person of the Holy Spirit, creating the very living Christ in us, the logical question is, when do you receive the Holy Spirit? Now, some people, and by the way, be careful here, because there, there, there are disagreements among even theologians about when you receive the Holy Spirit. For example, in my tradition, Southern Baptist tradition, which is the only tradition of the body of Christ that I've ever been a part of, my tradition historically has been you receive the Holy Spirit at the moment of conversion. But my Pentecostal brothers and sisters, whom I believe are on their way to heaven because they know Jesus, whether they agree with me or I with them about when the Holy Spirit descends or not, I believe, I say, I don't believe in a Baptist-only bride. I believe the bride of Christ is made up of every person, no matter the denominational name, who has truly trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior. I'd hate to get to heaven and find out only Baptists were there. Man, that'd be awful. I can't stand some of them here. Amen. Amen. 
Pentecostal friends believe, some of them believe you receive part of the Holy Spirit of salvation, but the rest of the power of the Holy Spirit and a second work of grace called the second blessing. But some of our pinnacle, the oneness groups, believe a little differently, but uh, and so on. But what's the answer? When do we receive the Holy Spirit? Now listen carefully what I'm going to tell you. We receive the Holy Spirit exactly the same way Israel received the glory on the Day of Atonement. God has never altered his way by which he comes to live in his house. He only enters a dwelling, that is our body, one way. Well, how was that? How did Israel receive the glory on the Day of Atonement? Well, they had to come through the only door that led into the Holy of Holies. It was the outer court gate. Now that fence you see there, seven and a half feet high, 75 feet wide, 150 feet long. It was actually set in sockets of silver, which are not shown here, but you couldn't crawl under it, you couldn't crawl over it. The only way to go in to meet with the glory of God on the Day of Atonement was to go through the one door. Now see that gate and all of the colors? I wish I had time and I don't. But in your personal study, take the time to do it. Every one of those colors represents something about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The red, the blue, the scarlet, the white, holiness, royalty, sacrifice, all speaking of who Jesus Christ is. Why? Because according to the words of the new covenant, now listen, the new system of things that are far better than the old, the writer of Hebrews said, Jesus said, I am the door. By me, if any man go in and out, he shall find life. John 14 says this, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Have you ever had anybody say, why are you uh, uh, Christians so narrow-minded that you believe Jesus is the only way? Well, the answer is because Jesus is the only way. <laughs> you know, ladies and gentlemen, just to be frank with you, if there were more than one way for a person to enter into a relationship with the living God, I'd go across this country announcing all the ways possible and ask people to make a, a choice between them. But if there's only one way that a person can have a real relationship with the God who is the creator of this universe, then the greatest disservice I could ever do would be to pretend that there's more than one. There's only one way. There is an exclusivity about this thing of relationship with God that is in the New Covenant, the New Testament, and his name is Jesus. But now wait a minute. It's not just any Jesus. You don't come to Jesus as a good teacher. You don't come to Jesus as a good uh, uh, founder of a good religion. You don't come to Jesus as a good example. The only way you can actually enter into a relationship with the living God is as they receive the glory, they had to come through the door 
And the first thing that happened was they had to kill the lamb. So you don't come to Jesus as a good teacher, a good example. You come to him as the lamb slain on our behalf. Ladies and gentlemen, if you miss Jesus as the sacrifice on our behalf, you will miss a relationship with God. Albert Schweitzer, great man, great intellect, great human spirit. Albert Schweitzer made the comment, I believe in the historicity of Jesus. In other words, I believe Jesus was a real historical person. But I cannot stomach the idea, he said, that he or anybody else has to die in order for me to be able to live. Well, ladies and gentlemen, with all due respect to Albert Schweitzer, Dr. Schweitzer, a great man, if Jesus doesn't die for us, we will never live. So we come to Jesus not as the door, the, the door alone, but we come to Jesus as the lamb slain on the cross. Now the question is, why is it necessary for the lamb to die? The brass altars where the lamb was sacrificed and it's out in the outer court, why did they have to kill a lamb? The answer is because the blood had to be sprinkled on the mercy seat, which was above the Ark of the Covenant. Now remember that three-room house, the outer court, which had no roof. The holy place where all the priests went. The holy of holies, which only the high priest one day a year went, had an Ark of the Covenant. There really was an Ark of the Covenant. Now, if you saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, <laughs> I hate to disappoint anybody, but the Ark of the Covenant is not stored away in some American government building somewhere. Come to think of it, knowing our government, it might be. I, I, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. The Ark of the Covenant was a container, a wooden container, much like a Lord's Supper table size-wise, but it was hollowed out. We don't know how they got into it because the scripture never indicates. But uh, uh, we don't know whether the front let down or the sides let down or the top raised up. We just don't know. But inside the Ark of the Covenant were three items. It's going to answer the question, why the blood has to be sprinkled. And there they are. Those items were in the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle that Moses built. Now, two of them don't mean a thing to us as far as this study is concerned, but they're all three so interesting, I won't tell you about them, okay? And since I'm in charge, I guess I can do what I want to One of the things that was in the Ark of the Covenant is Aaron's rod that budded. Right there it is. Now, you know the story of Aaron's rod that budded? You remember Aaron was of the tribe of Levi, and God had chosen the tribe of Levi to be the only ones who could enter in representing all of the rest of the people. Aaron and his family were the chosen family from the tribe of Levi. Nobody else got to go in. 
Now, I know those two and a half million Israelites were Baptists because they all got upset that our Aaron got to do something the rest of them didn't. <laughs> they just didn't think that was fair. I'm not making this up. It's in the book of Numbers. They complained that, that Aaron and his sons got to go in and then Aaron got to go in one day a year in the Holy of Holies. And they were like most Baptists, I guess. Uh, well, I'm as good as Aaron. I don't understand why I can't do it too. <laughs> you, you, you see? So one day God decides he's going to settle their problem, their murmuring, their complaining. And he tells uh, Moses, get a rod representing each of the 12 tribes that, by the way, you saw the picture this morning of the tabernacle with the tents around it. They camped around the, the tabernacle of the 12 tribes did. And so uh, Moses uh, was told by the Lord, get a rod, lay it in the, in the, in the uh, front of the tent of the chief tribe, uh, chief family of each tribe. In other words, over here's the tribe of Reuben, over here's the tribe of Judah, over here's the tri tribe of Zebulon, over here's the tribe of somebody else. And before each chief uh, family in each tribe, there was a rod laid out one evening. So he had 12 rods. Now you know what a rod is. It's a staff. They use it to drive sheep. They use it to walk. It was a tool, a wooden tool that they used. And so they just laid this dead wooden tool out in front of the chief family. They waited all night, went to bed, went to sleep, woke up, and they were told to inspect the rods. They went out and they looked, and over here's Reuben's, and that rod's just an old dead stick, just like it was the night before. Over here is the root of, uh, tribe of, 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 of uh, Issachar. And it's just an old dead stick. One after another until they came to the tribe of Levi. And Aaron's rod had sprouted buds and almonds overnight. And God said, now, I want you to put this in the Ark of the Covenant as a reminder of my sovereignty. I can choose to do with whomever I please, whatever I choose to do. I am the Lord. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, God is still sovereign. Did you know that? He can choose to do things with a Scott Smith that he never chooses to do with a Paul Morrison or vice versa. And we wonder, why does this happen to this one? This good thing happened to them. Why? And the answer is simply because God, in his providence, has sovereignly chose that it would. And so they put the uh, rod that budded in the Ark of the Covenant as a reminder of God's sovereignty. Second thing that they had was this little bowl, and there's no manna in it, no wafer in it right there, but that's the pot of manna. You know what the manna was, don't you? Now, wait a minute, because if you say you know what it was, then you will be saying you know more than Israel did, because they didn't know what it was. You see, manna is um, a Hebrew word. If they never translate it, the King James doesn't translate it. And it's just a transliteration from the Greek uh, or the Hebrew, actually, uh, of the Old Testament into English. Manna, every time you say the word manna, you're saying a Hebrew word. If you want the definition of manna, it's what is it? 
Now, I know what you mean when you say you know what the manna was. It was the white wafer that was out on the ground every night for 40 years in the wilderness. And every morning the children of Israel went out and they picked up the manna. And they, on the sixth day, they picked up enough for the sixth and the Sabbath day, the seventh day. And God provided them manna for 40 years. Hallelujah. Isn't God good? He gave them manna, only they complained about it. What? They said. All we get this manna? Here's what they said. It's in the book of Numbers. Back in Egypt, in other words, before we became special in the deliverance, back in Egypt we had onions and leeks and garlic and all that kind of good stuff. Out here, all we've got is this manna. I can see them now. They were traveling. You know, that cloud by day, pillar of fire by night would lead them, and they would follow. That was God's presence. They'd follow. When the cloud would stay or the pillar of fire would stay, they would pitch their tents, and then they would pitch the tabernacle and so on. And I can see Dad in one of these families. As he comes in the evening, and you know, he's fixed the, uh, the animals and gotten everything put up for the night. He walks in, and he's tired, and his wife is fixing supper, and he says, Honey, what's for supper tonight? She said, manna. <laughs> what is it? He said, again? Can you picture this? With one of those Israelite families. That's all we've eaten for months. I'm tired of this. What is it? And she probably said, well, if you are going to complain about what we have to eat, you just go to the pastor with it. And so he did. He went to Moses. And Moses said, what is it? And they said, that's the problem. <laughs> We're tired of it. I'm not making this up. You don't make this kind of stuff up. It really happened. And Moses said, well, what do you want? And they said, we want meat. And so Moses went to the Lord and said, these people you've given me to pastor, they're a pain in the neck. <laughs> and the Lord said, what is it, Moses? He said, that's the problem. <laughs> they want meat instead of manna. And the Lord said, okay, I'll give them what they want. Now, ladies and gentlemen, have you been a Christian long enough to know the worst thing that could ever happen to any one of God's children is for God to give us what we want? You see, he's promised to provide what we need according to his riches in glory. But if he gives us what we want, oh my, it will only bode disaster for us as his children. So the next morning, the children of Israel went out expecting manna and quail had come in overnight. Now the Bible says they flew in from the ocean. I'm not a bird hunter, but I don't think you look for quail to fly in from the ocean. It was a miracle. And oh, for three days they picked up manna and I mean uh, quail and they fixed the quail. They deep fried it. They southern fried it. They did everything imaginable to that quail. They were, it was wonderful. Now I'm telling you the truth. In 30 days it was sticking in their teeth. They got tired of what they had wanted a hundred times quicker than they had gotten tired of what they needed. And they went to Moses and said, Lord, Moses, if you'll go to the Lord and tell him we're sorry, and if you'll take away this quail and give us manna again, we'll just be so grateful. And so Moses went to the Lord said, Lord, they're repenting. They're sorry. And the Lord said, okay, I'll take it away. But I want you to put a little manna in a bowl and keep it in the Ark of the Covenant as a reminder of my sufficiency. 
As the rod was a sign of his sovereignty, the manna was a sign of his sufficiency. Now, you know, we can laugh about this, and it is funny, and I try to make it a little humorous, you know, because this is the Old Testament. It's hard teaching. You've you got to make somebody laugh sometime. But there was no laughing matter to them. 33,000 died because of murmuring. You know, I have a, I have a personal conviction that may, it may be the worst sin of the Old Covenant was murmuring, and I'm not so sure but what it may wind up being the worst sin of the new covenant, murmuring. It's the third item in the ark that's important for us. The rod represents God's sovereignty. The manna represents God's sufficiency. Now, what's the third item in the ark of the covenant? The law, the tablets of the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, however you want to call it. Now, if the rod represents sovereignty and if the manna represents sufficiency, what does the law represent? God's standard. Now, follow me carefully here. You do know how a person goes to heaven, don't you? You go to heaven because you're perfect. Heaven is a perfect place prepared for perfect people. And it is not perfection according to your standard or my standard. It's a perfection according to God's standard, which is the Decalogue, the law. You know the Ten Commandments. And then Jesus came along in the New Covenant, and he made the law not an external thing to do, but an internal thing to be. Don't be lustful. Don't be hateful. Or you violated the standard of God already. Well, if you have to be perfect according to God's standard, the law, in order to go to heaven, I'm in trouble. Do you join me there? Now, I could try to convince you that I keep the Ten Commandments, but if I did, my wife Mary will just show up and tell you the truth. Do you understand the standard of God man can never attain? The law was never given for man to live by it. The law was given as evidence and proof that man can't live by it. So they would be ready for the one who would live it perfectly. What was his name? Jesus. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, now watch this. Our standard that we have to meet in order to have a relationship with God is perfection because he's perfect. And Amos 3.3, how can two walk together except they agree? The only problem is we're sinners. We've fallen short of the mark. Sin basically means missing the mark. We haven't got a ghost of a chance until in the new covenant, and all of this is pointing toward that day when Jesus would come. There was a man. Now he's the God-man. He is the second man, the last Adam. His name is Jesus. Lived perfectly according to God's standard. Remember when he was baptized? The heavens opened up and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. When Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration before his death, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. From the beginning to the end, God the Father was pleased with the Lord Jesus because as man, he lived perfectly submitted to the Father. But he died 
But the reason he died is because he who knew no sin became sin for me. In other words, he took my sin. He took your sin. Are you following me there? So he went to the cross. So when Jesus died on the cross, now watch, as the lamb, by the way, he was not only the lamb, he was our high priest because only the high priest can offer the blood, sprinkle it on the mercy seat. So Jesus, not only as the lamb died, but as our high priest, he took the blood, his own precious blood, into the holy of holies of heaven and sprinkled it on the mercy seat. Why? Because it covers the law. God never judges his people according to the standard of the law. He judges his people according to the standard of the Christ who has been given to them on their behalf. So that from the day you were saved, now watch, the blood of Jesus has already been applied at the Holy of Holies. As our high priest, he took it to heaven. Now, when you trust him as Lord and Savior, I was 13 years old in Oklahoma City, didn't have a clue about what I'm telling you right now, but that day I was converted. I realized later, as I discovered what the scripture says actually happened, the Holy Spirit came to live in me the moment I trusted Jesus. Why? Because he comes in on the basis of the covered law. When the blood is applied, the law is covered. And when you trust him, the law is already covered. The Holy Spirit comes to live in you. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, we get all the Holy Spirit we'll ever get, the moment of conversion. Why? Because he's a person who comes to live in you. He's not a thing you get in piecemeal. He comes to live in you. But now watch. Oh, this is wonderful. Because there's another side to that coin. And most people don't think about it. The scripture teaches not only did the one who had no sin become sin for me, but when you and I trust him as Lord and Savior, we become his righteousness. And you say, Brother Paul, I don't feel righteous. I know what you mean. You say, Brother Paul, I don't act righteous. I know what you mean. I'm in the same boat. But I'm not interested in how you and I feel or how we act. I'm interested in how the Father has declared us to be. Here's what he said. I declare you righteous. The word righteousness is a great word, by the way. The old Puritans used to translate it oughtness. God the Father is righteous. He is as he ought to be. God the Son is righteous. He is as he ought to be. God the Spirit is righteous. He is as he ought to be. All men are unrighteousness until they come to Jesus. And when you trust Jesus, the Father declares you to be, now watch, righteous. Only it's not yours. It's his, accredited to your account. Just like it was not his sin, it's your sin accredited to his account. It's a bookkeeping term. And so the records of heaven says, you are righteous. You know that's the reason 
Paul wrote to the Romans and he said, for whom God did foreknow, he chose and those he chose, he predestinated and those he predestinated, he justified and those he justified, he sanctified and glorified and those that he sanctified, he glorified. And it's in the past tense. In other words, in the mind of God, you're already everything you'll ever be one day. But you're in the process of it personally. So that the record of heaven declares you've been justified. You know what justification means? Just as if you've never sinned. Ladies and gentlemen, you don't do things that are righteous in order to be righteous. 58 years ago, May the 28th, I stood before a preacher with this beautiful, dark-haired, dark-eyed girl standing beside me. And the preacher said, do you? And I said, I do. And he said to her, do you? And she said, I do. And he said, I declare you to be husband and wife. And do you know, for 58 years now, we have been acting like we're married. You know why? Because we were declared to be, and I have a record called a marriage license that says we are. So we don't act married in order to be married. We act married because we have been declared to be married. You don't act righteous in order to be righteous. You've been declared righteous. Now go out and act like God has declared you to be. And when you choose to do the right thing, the ought thing, the Holy Spirit's power is released in you as the very life of Jesus and marriages have turned around. Lives have turned around. Children have turned around. Parents have turned around when they've come to understand who they are by the grace of God and they choose to be who God says they are because of who Jesus is as their and what the scripture teaches in the tabernacle is that our lamb died. Our high priest, the Lord Jesus, took his own blood into the Holy of Holies. It's covered. When you and I said, Lord, I do trust you, the Father said, I do declare you to be righteous. Now, progressive righteousness, the, the way you live, begins to grow. And one day when the resurrection takes place, the body will be raised glorious, changed, and we will actually be as we have been declared to be for all eternity. Now, not hind now hindered by the flesh, there will be no hindrance by the flesh in the day of eternity. But you don't act like a Christian in order to be a Christian, ladies and gentlemen. You act like a Christian, because Papa declared that you are righteous because of his son. Make sense? Now, there are further questions, and that's what we're going to answer in the next hour. We're going to close for the moment here, but let me just show you what I mean. Somebody says, Brother Paul, I think I'm understanding what you're saying. I think I see it, but I have to say, how can you have the Holy Spirit and be as miserable as I am? How can you have the Holy Spirit and do some of the awful stupid stuff that I do? Oh, that's easy. It's easy to have something and not experience it. It's, it's easy to have something and not enjoy it. You're saying, 
So you're saying I have a new nature, I'm a new creation because of who Christ is accredited to my account and the Father sees me as righteous. But how can I have that and the person of the Holy Spirit in me and not experience and still fail like I do? I heard about an old Methodist circuit riding preacher one day. Years ago, in horse and buggy days, cold winters, he'd travel from preaching spot to preaching spot. 14 inches of snow, 15 degree weather, it was cold. He couldn't go anywhere to preach, and he was afraid he was going to starve to death. When the father of the richest family in the county, whose daughter was getting married, called him and said, Would you perform our wedding, our daughter's wedding? Well, boy, this preacher knew there's a good honorarium. Maybe they'd give me $100. That'd be like $1,000 in our day. I'd take $1,000 for a wedding, wouldn't you, Chuck? Yeah. Scott? Yeah, I would. So he went to the home on the appointed day. Went in, did his bidding, married the girl. At the door, the father gave him his gift, and it was a pair of gloves in a box. He didn't know it was gloves. It's in the box with a bow He got down his Jordan bucket, like most traveling evangelists, wanted to find out what the love offering was. So he opened it up. <laughs> and it was a pair of gloves. He was so angry. Got home, said to his wife, you'll never believe. They gave me these lousy gloves. I can't believe it. They could have given me any amount. And they gave me these gloves. Threw them in a bureau drawer. Promptly forgot them. And a year later, cold weather no snow, but it was cold. So he thought, you know, I better get some use out of those gloves that I got a year ago. He went up, tried to put a glove on, and wadded up in the thumb was a $100 bill. Wadded up in the finger was a $100 bill. Ten, I don't have a calculator, but is that still $1,000? <laughs> Two questions. Number one. How long had he possessed the $1,000? Question two. How long had he experienced and enjoyed what he already possessed? Question. How long have you had the Holy Spirit dwelling in you? Since the moment of conversion. Question. How long have you experienced and enjoyed the power and the person of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you? Maybe not at all. Why? And this is my final word in this session. Because in order for the Spirit to be released, for you to enjoy it, you have to experience the brass laver. See, it wasn't just the altar where the lamb died. There was a brass laver just before they entered into the building where Papa came down on the Day of Atonement. And they would never be able to enter in to enjoy it without this brass lever. What does that mean? Let's get a bite to eat, and we'll find out. All right? God bless you. You're dismissed. We'll be back here when the music starts, okay? Thank you for coming.